Let us pray. Father God, come before a word that is significant, that is life-giving, and yet we are just but dust without you. And so we pray that your spirit be poured out upon us as we consider your word and think upon it. May we leave this place changed with the power of your word. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the first hymns, lyrics mentioned in the Bible uh, for this congregation. Never before in Scripture have we seen a congregation of people sing to the Lord before until we get to Exodus 15. And so Yahweh's salvation of His people has inspired a new song. And so His people sang. And we pick up just as the first of two hymns is coming to a close. And some of the final lyrics of Moses, the song included in our Scripture reading this morning, uh, especially verses 17 and 18, they're dreaming of a world, a new Eden where... There is this relationship established between God and His people where God would live alongside His people forever just as He once had created. That's how the hymn draws to a close. This hymn led by Moses in which he would have been joined by upwards of a million people. Men and women. Young and old. And now finally we're going to Learn the name of the little girl. The little girl who watched over Moses when he was just a a young infant in the basket, making sure that he did not drown. We now find her as uh, a lady who would have been in her likely 80s, if not 90s at this point. And her name is Miriam. And the scriptures at this point, they call her a prophetess. Actually, before Moses is technically called a prophet, Miriam is called a prophetess. And so this leads to a lot of interesting topics we have to uh, discuss because if we were to leave this place today, we, we leave into a world of utter egalitarianism, of utter gender fluidity as the key buzzword. Gender has no distinction. Anything a man can do, a woman can do better. Uh, It just, we're just, we should look at us all as just these uh, man or woman exactly the same, with exactly the same giftings, with exactly the same callings, and that's how you can get Uh, the actual societal chaos that we now find ourselves in. And it actually starts with a foundation of egalitarianism. Of extreme equality between the sexes and the genders. And, And that leads to a question. What does God say 
about man, and what does God say about woman? The first thing that I, you almost always have to bring up is the fact that what, what does God keep saying at the start of our Bibles? This is good. That's good. Good, 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 good. Lots of goods in that first chapter of the Bible. What's the first thing, when God zooms in the lens a little bit in Genesis chapter 2, and we get a, a closer glimpse at the creation of man and women, man and woman, what's the first thing that's not good? What's the first thing that's the kind of cognitive dissonance in the world that's not good if we don't have it in creation? The creation of women. The creation of women. By the way, that means there can be no gender fluidity. You can't, uh, Dylan Mulvaney can't be a woman tomorrow or a man tomorrow or whatever. He is what God created him to be. But men outside just alone in themselves are missing aspects of the fullness of the Imago Dei of certain qualities, and it's not just uh, the, the biological realities, but in the essence of personhood, we're missing something together. And so that's an important place to start. I'm sure there's possibly women here, but the majority of the world, for instance, would say a woman should be a pastor, which I always point out in the wooden Hebrew, an elder is a bearded one. God, again, has distinct gender roles. But here we have a category. Here we have the Bible show us a boundary. And if you don't have a category where women can worship together, women can delight in the, the Lord together, and I do know, and I've heard pastors, and often pastors kind of develop this mindset in their flock of like never having women's events, never having women's ministry, because they've had uh, situations and circumstances within their congregation where somebody went too far, somebody took it too far. I was a member of a church one time, and uh, more than a decade and a half ago, where one overzealous woman not knowing her role within the broader community, the church shrunk from like 90 to 30 in a matter of a couple months. And so here is a category, and Miriam is leading the women in worship. It's undeniable. And so there is that category. However, Notice the lyrics of the song. The lyrics of the song repeat the first verse of Moses' song. She's repeating what she's already heard. And we know that Moses' word, because it's in our Bibles, isn't just Moses' word, but whose word is it really? It's God's word. And so Miriam is responsible in this for making sure that as she leads the women in worship, and notice it's just women, she's not leading men, 
as she leads them in worship, that she's holding fast to the Word of God. You know, there is a portion in Scripture, if you go to Numbers chapter 12, where Miriam's going to forget this. She's going to get a big head about herself and her role within the community, and she's going to think, I'm just like Moses. I'm just as good as Moses. And God's going to strike her with leprosy. And Moses is going to be a mediator of sorts, intervening with God, and God will give her mercy and eventually let her back into the camp. And so, while we don't want to be a people who say, Anything a man's called to do within the church, a woman's also called to do. We also want to be biblical people, and that does mean that maybe we might, if you came in here thinking women can't do anything in the church, that's a misunderstanding as well. Here she is. She leads this wonderful worship, moment of worship, and she does it through the Word of God. And by the way, in the ultimate reality of it all, we're all responsible for the words we say in community, that there be godly, biblical things, words that build up. I, I, I have to care about the words I say. Uh, Rob has to care about the words he says. Jesse has to care about the words he says. Andy has to care about the words he says. All of us fall under this category, and so let's not get carried away saying this is unfair or that this distinction of differences between man and woman is some problem of God that he needs to solve. He likes us together in community, complementing one another, and when he sees that, he says, that's good. That's something that's good. And so the song finally ends, and the moment passes, and I would guess in all the time of the, the wilderness period, we're very much entering into the third act of the book of Exodus, that there was no moment of pure joy and celebration, of joyful optimism, than when they left those shores of the Red Sea. They had seen the strong white hand of the Lord save them and break their chains of slavery. Their enemies were dead and gone, and the Lord was with them. And at a moment like this, it, it, had, it had never happened before in human history to this scale, to this degree. I'm not sure you noticed, but actually in the 19 verses of Moses' song, as they moved down the road, I'm sure they were singing them. And, and I want to point out something as they're moving down the road. They're traveling now in the wilderness with the song in their back pocket as they walk and they march. I want to point you out something. It's how many times some reference to water is given within Moses' song. Verse 1. The horse and his rider, he has thrown them into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. The floods covered them in verse 5. Verse 8, we have the waters were piled up. The floods stood upright. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. Verse 19, when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. Verse 19, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. In a 19-verse song, 
It mentions water in some form nine times. Ten times if you include Miriam repeating Moses' first verse. That's a lot of water we've been singing about. They're metaphorically drowning in water references. But what happens when the water recedes? What happens when the 11th time water is brought up in chapter 15? It's in verse 22, and it's now because no water is to be found. When people, the people, God's people need that water. What do we do when by day to day, for three days, living water, we could say, can't be found anywhere? What do we do then? What happens to that God you've been praising about how he controls the water, doesn't give us water to drink. Well, let's take a look. The first thing I want to point out is that they are in the wilderness of Shur. Are you sure where Shur is? Some of you might venture a guess, but I would guess you don't really know with great confidence where exactly the wilderness of Shur is. If I were to give you a map of the zoomed in in the region, of this world, you couldn't maybe say it with absolute confidence where the wilderness of shore resides. Most of us would be saying, I don't really have a clue. And that's part of the point. Neither did they. All of this land for the mass of people is uncharted new territory for this longer, larger congregation. And this territory is a harsh land. It is a wilderness in the truest form. And the God we were singing about of controlling all of the water, he's now brought us into a wilderness without water. The God who leads the people into wilderness, he will do it through miraculous means. But he will allow that road in which people walk from time to time to be a hard one. We need to ask ourselves, how do we handle changes to the plans we hope to see out play out in a particular way. Which plans are changed when our hopes and our expectations are not met. That's often when we as humanity are at our worst. We wanted something to go one way, and God guided our path down another. It only took three days without seeing water for the first congregational hymn sing that was all about water to become an embittered groaning, whining, complaining mess, forgetting all the biblical lyrics of praise that they had just been singing three days earlier. God's taking them into uncharted territory, and He's taking them into an uncharted territory that they were not comfortable with, that was not a part of their personal plans, quickly broke their faith, and they doubted once more. And this is most certainly a metaphor for the Christian life. We have a God who does not lead us on the easiest path. He likes to take us down these roads of uncharted territory. He's not going to give us everything we want and how we want it and how will we handle it. How will we handle that moment? If you're someone who really struggles with things changing, which most of us in this room I'm sure do, in one way or another, God's sovereign plan is really going to be frustrating for us at times. <coughs> On this road, God selected 
the people, after three days in the wilderness, now they finally spot water. And you would have, I'm sure there was joy. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody broke out in the song once again in approaching. Relief is at hand. I could see water on the horizon. And yet, when they get to that water, the water at Merah mocked them. It wasn't good. It wasn't suitable for drinking. It was bitter. Here they were in a foreign wilderness desert, dying of thirst, and God allows the water itself to become a taunt to them. And so what are the people back to doing? Complaining to Moses in verse 24. And by complaining to Moses, who are they really complaining about? Complaining about God. Because we want to be our little gods. And God says, no, I want you to be my child. Now, I don't want you to be some rival God to me as if you could be a rival God to me. You are my child. I am your God. You give me a person in prolonged frustration and anger, and I'll show you someone struggling with the fact that they are not in control. They are not God. Teenagers, I'm sorry to pick on you for a moment, but you guys are in an era of life where basically it is impossible to clearly figure out what your five or ten year plan is. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do it or that's not a good pursuit. Um, it's just an era of our life where a lot of things are changing. I, I truly believe, like, this is the first time in my life, I'm in my 40s, where my five-year plan, while it's had all sorts of craziness in it, the big goals, the big desires, the big hopes kind of have worked out. And, and to a certain extent, obviously not the exact way I would have wanted it to, but the thing I was saying five years ago I wanted to do, I wanted to be a pastor at Old God Shop Reformed Church, and I wanted to, to take be here and just say, not this place, world. Not this piece of land. Not this place. I, I don't want this place to be yet another empty shell of a church where maybe people come to, but there's really no gospel to be shared if it's still open. But actually, a, a, hopefully, a vibrant community. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle. And that doesn't mean we don't have our challenges or our periods of time where we're going without water or we're just kind of murmuring or grumbling. But that's the first time in my life where a five-year plan has looked somewhat as I hoped it would. Because God is a God who wants to remind us He is God and we are not. And He lays out plans that will not follow our plans. He lays out courses and patterns that will shift us at times, and we won't like them at times. And, and we all struggle with this. Nobody's mastered this in this room. And, and we want to complain about it, or we want to complain to someone about it, and, and we want to grumble just like, unfortunately, the congregation here grumbles. And, and we want to fret about something and we want to say, the big problem is X, Y, or Z. And we often can fall into a dangerous pattern where we're, we're prone to try to be people of God, people who are God, from Monday to Saturday, 
We give it up for a little while on Sunday morning, and then we go back and fall into the routine of trying to be God again later in the evening. We don't like waterless pathways. We don't like when our ultimate destination doesn't follow what we hoped. We find those roads too bitter. And so that's a great tension of the Christian faith, especially in mature Protestant circles. We are very good at knowing where the end destination is. We're very good. We don't believe, you know, we have to join some monastery uh, at some place or, or join a convent in order to say a lot of Hail Marys to chip off some purgatory time. We know the big picture. The big picture is we're on our way to heaven. What we struggle with is the smaller steps of faith that we take from day to day where we're not to be murmurers, we're not to be complainers, we're not to find be like fault finders with our situation at all times, but we're to be people walking in faith in light of God. And the people, the congregation of the Lord in this passage are a terrible illustration of how to do that faithfully. And yet here we do have in this passage Moses, who is a, a wonderful example of what faithfulness looks like. Because the reality is, for three days, all of these people would have been praying. For three days, all of these people would have been uh, calling out to the Lord. Moses included. But three days, at some point, at the bitter waters of Merah, the people snap. And yet Moses doesn't break here. And Moses goes once again to the Lord, his God, in prayer. And the Lord blesses that. He blesses that road of bitterness that he intentionally led his people down in order to mature their faith, to grow them. He goes to prayer. And God answers that prayer. And God responds to that prayer. And God is gracious to that prayer. And so Moses sought God for relief. And the Lord showed Moses a log. Jesse, your translation is better here. Showed, the Lord showed Moses a tree, the King James would tell us. I love that imagery of the tree. Somehow this tree... Somehow this weighty law is going to bring relief. And so Moses is instructed by God, take those bitter waters and throw this tree, throw this log into them. And the amazing thing about this log is all of a sudden it becomes a filter by which the water passes through. And all of a sudden what was once bitter and what once made the people angry and something they could not get over and would not drink and would not partake in, through this log it becomes sweet. And honestly, while I am not sure what, how much of the Old Testament family of, in faith they could grasp in this moment, could they really comprehend what this log was pointing towards? How could this simple log be a filter? that made my most embittered fears become sweet, we're on the other side of the cross. And we know how this can come true. Because we have a name for that wooden log. 
And that name of the wooden log is called the cross, by which all other matters, all other hardships, all other grumblings, all other complaints come to die. Other struggles are judged in light of it through the cross of Calvary. And we can prayerfully approach our God and say, Lord, while I might have come to you bitter, while I might have come to you upset about how I am not God over the course of my life and how you keep changing the path and keep changing the plan and providing different challenges I face, I know the log of the Lord. I know the sacred cross of Christ. And I know that this is the lens in which my whole life needs to be filtered so that I can find sweet eternal purpose that others cannot find although they live in the world, while they live in the wilderness. This passage is a passage announcing to us a cure, a cure that requires faith where the perishing sinner must flee to the crucified Jesus and the one in need must run to Jesus. And until we do, we'll be in agony. And we'll be embittered. And we'll find reasons to be angry and upset while trying to be God. Have you been bitter lately, full of complaints? Why haven't you come to the tree of our Lord who hung upon it for our sins? Have you... Why haven't you had your priorities in life filtered through His gracious love? I know because I struggle with the same thing. It's often pride. It's often my desire to want to be my own God. But why do we do such silly things? The passage tells us a key tenet of the Christian life when it comes to murmuring and complaining. The Lord has provided the filter, purifying all bitterness, leaving sweetness in its wake instead. The eye of faith alone can see this. The hand of faith alone can grasp this. No mara of this life is so bitter that the cross of Christ is unable to cure it unless we stubbornly refuse to allow it to do so. When we are the saint who sings, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want in faith. When we actually have the courage to live by those words, even the want of water, even the basic core building blocks of sustainable life itself, even that can be removed from us, and it still will be sweet. The Apostle Paul knew this practically speaking. This is why he could boldly declare, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And yet soon after the Lord showed his people this log, the filter by which in the wilderness... This bitterness could be made sweet. God declares, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which he is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, there's a few interesting things about that verse. First off, Notice, redemption, salvation came first. The desire for obedience comes next. But this is another head-scratcher verse. This is one of those verses where theologians go, what is going on here? Where in a Jewish synagogue on Saturday, they, they don't really know how to handle this. 
Because the you there, while we assume it's a plural you, referencing all of the congregation of Israel, is actually saying it's in the singular. But it doesn't seem to fit, though most commentators, if they're pushed, comes to shove, it doesn't seem to fit Moses is the one who will make all diseases be the go away through his covenant faithfulness. There's still some tension in the language. But, okay, maybe that was offered by God at this moment to Moses. Is Moses going to succeed in that? No, he's going to fail. He's going to fall and stumble into sin at, at times in the wilderness. But I actually take this prophetically to be looking forward to the man who does not stumble. The man who does not fall. The one man in whom I know that, you know, uh, I guess they're getting ready. I, I think Britain already went back to masks. Uh, uh, September, October, you know, it's no longer flu season, it's COVID season. So, uh, you know, they're, get, they're getting amped up for their COVID scare material. And I, I'm not saying don't take precautions. Remember, God, the Lord our God has uh, provided us first with a wonderful immune system, but also... Uh, discovery of medicines that have been tested over a long period of time that we can take. Uh, but here's the Lord, and he's saying, I'm going to be your healer. I'm going to be your ultimate healer if there is this one man who can be covenantly faithful to all that I command. I will be faithful to you. I'm going I'm to let it be so that you never have to worry about not having water again. You're never going to have to be worried about bitterness again. You're never going to have to worry about having hitting sick again. And when we start thinking about that, we start talking about that, we start thinking, boy, what a land would that be? What a land that would be. We start thinking in almost a heavenly kind of thing, but there's this interesting thing that then happens. There's a shift in the passage. They, they don't just keep drinking the water in Marah that's no longer bitter. But the passage makes clear in the final verse that they go to Elim. They go a little while further, and all of a sudden, in this desolate wilderness, they find a place with 12 beautiful springs of water. One for each tribe. And they find 70 palm trees there. You know, Moses in, in Psalm 90, and this was in the sermon before Adam quoted Psalm 90 to me early in the morning, but uh, he talks about the, the good length of a generational life is 70 years. But 70 is also the number of elders, but there's just this completeness. It's 7 and 10 together. And so there is this, this idyllic place that they go to at the end here, this Elim. And, and they would have seen this as a paradise sanctuary uh, to some extent. And yet the promise of this faithful healer who will restore all of the world in one sense and be with them in the world as they close their hymn with in verses 17 and 18, but also in God promising that there's a time coming where, where through obedience of one man, that there will be this greater uh, era of where there is no sickness, there is no illness, 
Surely this is a taste of heaven to come. For the Hebrew reader, maybe they wouldn't have picked up on that, but they would have definitely at least lamented themselves. Why can't God just make all the world elim? Why can't it all just be this sanctuary of peace? And the reality is, our heavenly healer did. Because our heavenly healer died. And he died on a tree. So that his death might not only save up be the death of sin for those whom he loves, or the death of death, or the death of bitterness, or, or these things, but also did he not say in the Gospel of John chapter 14, I go to prepare a better place for you? He goes to prepare a better elim. On the pilgrimage of this life, springs of joy will follow uh, trials of faith. And as people of God, on the pilgrimage of this life, understand that no matter how barren the desert seems, God provides water along the way when we prayerfully seek Him and seek to be faithful to Him. And one day, sooner than the last, we will be delivered from the wilderness, delivered from pain, delivered from struggle, delivered from hardship, into a glorious life that's never-ending. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come here week in, week out, and we have a taste of heavenly truths. It helps sustain us, Lord. But far too often as we go out in the world, we forget that you are the God who leads us faithfully. And even though you're the God who tells us there's a day coming in the future where you will wipe away every tear, we struggle with the, the opposite of that fact. And the opposite means that the, the other side of that coin means that we're going to shed tears at times in this life. We're going to have hardships in life. We're going to have planned something for our life, planned a great many of things that don't come to fruition, that leave us angry and embittered. And Lord, help us to have the wisdom of Moses in this passage. Help us to understand that when we're feeling overwhelmed, it's not a time for gossip. It's not a time for ridicule. It's a time for prayer. It's time for boldness. It's time for seeking you and saying, I know I'm not God. I know I've tried to be God lately, Lord, but I am not God. Help us all to be better at doing that, Lord. Help us to be more covenantly faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.